no way we're going to be in rows in heaven, right? You know, there's just no way. At some point, I don't think we're going to be in rows during worship anymore. And I don't know what that means. And there's not a timeline to that. But I was feeling that. I'm like, we're like singing the most powerful words ever, you know? Poured out on this idea of just like all of it, all of it. And we're over here just like, I bet Jesus in his perfection is that they're like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> like I doubt that that's what he's doing. He's probably receiving the praise of all creation. But um, all right, my name's Joshua. Um, I'm the pastor here at Ethos. Excited to be here. First of all, our summer shindigs are going pretty well. They really are. They had like 10 people at the last one, right? Was that Thursday? When was it? Thursday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so look, our 11 a.m., we've got summer shindigs, all right? This is our attempt to build community, to foster a safe place for friendship to thrive. So if you're like, man, I could really use a friend, ah. So these are on your chairs. Come to this. Our next one is August 9th at 7 p.m. at Centennial Park. There will be food provided, and Sam's cell is provided if you need to contact the guy hosting it. All right, um, so come to that. I'm, I'm speeding through that because I'm really trying to get to this sermon. We've been in Philippians for, we're in the teens now, so it's been at least 13, 14 weeks, and we're in a series called To Live as Christ. And uh, before I introduce what's coming next, I want to pose a question, and I want you to take it sincerely. I'm going to ask a question, and I need you to actually think for yourself on this one, okay? What makes you cry? What what makes you cry? I want you to try to think about the last time you cried and what were you doing. This could be happy tears, sad tears, you know, fictional tears, non-fictional tears. I've learned this about myself, and if you're like a counselor, you can diagnose me, but <laughs> fictional stuff tends to make me cry more than real life. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's a problem or not. But if I'm watching a TV show, the odds of me crying are just much higher for some reason. When Michael left the office in season seven, you know, you just mourn the death of the office. When, uh, when Leslie Nope and Ben get engaged on Parks and Rec, if you've watched that show, I, I'm about to name three shows that are all basically the same. The Office, Parks and Rec, and New Girl, all right? Uh, when Schmidt and Cece get married, oh, when he hops out that elevator and the, the music starts playing and he's all sleepy because he you know, had to do all those flights, oh, I'm just melted. Lately, the Instagram algorithm has figured out that I had a daughter, and it's been throwing me some baby videos. Dude, they are awful. Awful in what they do to me. They're amazing. I mean, they're beautiful. I cry, um, given that's the intro. <laughs> but literally the other day, golly, dude, there was this boy. This is awful. He'd been in a coma for 14 days. I don't know who this boy is. I was not a part of his journey. But he came back, he came to, he came out of his coma and immediately screams for his mom and his mom bends down and hugs him. And I'm holding back tears right now. Like, it was so emotional. I was like, oh, I haven't been praying for you, but I should have been, you know, I'm so glad you got your mama, you know, and I'm just, I'm just a mess, man. Like the dad in me is wrecked thinking about it. So I don't know what, what makes you cry. Maybe it's like a cute puppy video, you know, it's something like shallow like that. Maybe it's not shallow. I take that back. No offense. No offense. Puppies matter. Maybe they matter a little too much in this culture, but they do matter, right? Maybe it's like one of those, uh, you know, like when the military parent comes home from overseas and like surprises the student at gym class, so you're like, oh, no way, it's crazy. Um, 
Maybe it's something serious, like if someone around you is suffering. I don't know. We cry for a lot of reasons. It might be shallow. It might be deep. It might be sad. It might be sweet. That kind of sounded like Dr. Seuss just then. <laughs> um, I'm going to tell you about a recent time that I cried, all right? And it's all going to make sense in a few minutes. But last time I cried outside of for my daughter or the Instagram algorithm showing me a kid was at Frothy Monkey. So good news, I was in public. And I was uh, surrounded by like 20 people you know, drinking their lattes, having their meetings, whatever. And let me tell you, one thing that the smartphone took away from us that we don't give it credit for is people watching. When we get in, and that's kind of a joke because people watching is kind of creepy, you know, if you're the one doing the watching. But it's worth your time. And this story hopefully will illustrate why. But uh, man, I put your phone down sometime and just watch people. It's a, it's a fun activity. And the life hack to people watching is having your AirPods in. If you got your AirPods in, no one questions anything. You can be talking about them with your AirPods in to their face. They'll be like, oh, he's on a work call. That sounds like me, though, you know? <laughs> like, if you got your AirPods in, you can do whatever you want, and no one questions, oh, he's on a call, and he's oddly staring at me. It's like, little do you know, I'm not listening to anything. I'm looking at you thinking about you, stranger, you know? <laughs> it's pretty creepy. Anyway, uh, I'm not a creep. Anyway, so I was at Frothy, AirPods in, people watching. I don't do this a lot, but I was doing it. And I kind of got lost, all right? I, was, I started wondering what these people's lives were like, these strangers that I'd never seen that are drinking coffee in front of me. This one woman got up to head toward the restroom, and she was limping the whole way. And I just was like, man, I wonder what she's got. I wonder if that's like an injury, if it's arthritis, because I've got arthritis, and it, it's awful. I was like, golly, it's not fair that she has to limp everywhere she walks. And me knowing what it's like to have a, a hip that's like flared up, I'm like, she limps like that all day long. It's just a bummer. just started thinking about it. There was a mom and a daughter hanging out, chatting, thought about them, little do they know, thought about them and their story. I was like, I wonder how sweet this is, or if the mom's visiting and the daughter's just trying to entertain the mom, or if it's like a, a weekly deal where like, no, I always get coffee with my mom on Tuesdays, you know, kind of thought about that. Saw someone on their computer, naturally wondered if they were working, or if their boss just thought they were working remotely, uh, you know, and then my mind just sort of drifted, and here comes the Jesus juke, prepare yourself, but... This doesn't happen to me a lot. This is a very unique story, but I hope it becomes very normal for me, truly. I, I started wondering, I wonder how many of these people know the Lord, like for real, right? I said Jesus juke, but actually I don't mean it as a Jesus juke. I mean, legitimately, logically, I was wondering when, when that person lays their head on their bed at night, do they know they can talk to God, like for real, and like process their day, Maybe go over some things they're thankful for. Maybe bring some wounds and some heartbreak before God. And, and like God really will interact with them, right? Like God will be in their room. How many of them know the, the treasure of opening the word? Like, have you ever had that moment where you open the word and you happen to read that chapter and that verse at that moment in time in your life and you're like, how is this all happening? God is real, you know? Like the Bible is so full of so many treasures that blow our minds and like, rejuvenate our hearts and like I was just like I wonder how many how many of these people know that there's like a book that will just chronically blow their mind restore their soul it's really cool I, like, I wonder how many of these people know or have a community of people that if they bring their pain their heartbreak they'll legitimately be listened to supported walked with prayed with interceded on behalf of like I wonder how many people know the gift of a God-centered community I just started going on this little thing in my heart. And because here, look, this won't surprise you, but God means a lot to me. Like, I, like I've really, 
I have stories, man, of feeling like the Lord himself heard me and intervened in my life. I have stories of feeling like the Lord actually saved me from a death I was asking for. Like real talk. Not even like metaphorical death, like driving drunk death. Like seriously, I feel like he just spared other lives and mine in the meantime. There's moments where I've been praying to God in the, in the privacy of like this prayers that you'll never hear and know about, but like where I just, I, I, I was like, God, oh my goodness, you are meeting me. And, and, and truthfully, God has, has changed how I see my family, how I see my daughter, how I see raising a family, how I see my grandkids. Like, it's just changed everything, and it's meant the world to me. I'm so thankful that I believe in God and that I regularly try to talk to him and read and listen. And I genuinely believe that although he's hard to predict or get a finger on, he communicates back. And I don't always know when it's gonna happen or how it's gonna happen, but it does happen and it means the world. And as I started thinking about how much God means to me and then just the prospect of some people in this frothy monkey who are just enjoying a latte, not knowing God, I began crying. And I was like, gosh, I'm all emotional. And my AirPods were playing a sports podcast that I had begun ignoring like 20 minutes earlier. And I was like, well, this doesn't fit the picture. And I don't know what you do when you feel like God's stirring, but I was like, I need to play a sermon while I'm going through this moment. And so I went to my A1 preacher, John Tyson. He preaches in New York City. He's amazing. I really think he's an amazing preacher. And his most recent sermon had been uploaded just a few days before. You know what it was called? Praying Through Tears. So here I am in Frothy, crying, thinking about the Lord. And now my guy, John Tyson, who doesn't know me, that's my guy. Hope he hears this. Have no idea why he would. What up, John? My guy. <laughs> anyway, um, weird moment. I put on the sermon and I just feel this overlap. I'm like, oh, well, Lord, like, obviously, like, that's an example of when I feel like the Lord touched down in my life, right? Like, oh, man, I'm, I'm here crying over a frothy. And this guy that I think to listen to is literally, most recent sermon, joining Jesus and crying for the world. I was like, man. And my house church had been in Philippians before this church. That's where I got the idea, because God was blowing my mind through Philippians. And we had just covered the passage we're going to cover today where we're gonna discover what makes Paul cry. And I think we'll, we'll pretty easily find that what makes Paul cry is what makes Jesus cry. And perhaps it's an invitation to make us cry too. And so today we're gonna to talk about tears. And we're gonna read Philippians chapter three, verses 18, through chapter four, verse one. And Philippians has a lot of like church unity vibes. And so every week, I mean, you guys know this, most of y'all been here, but... We're asking someone to read the passage on behalf of the church. And so if you wouldn't mind, would someone volunteer to read Philippians 3.18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll continue on. Someone take it. No, you can't. You did. You, you did. No, no. Someone else. Someone beside Lexi. Someone, will someone read? Yeah, yeah, come on. Join and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
All right. Thank you. Um, all right. So here we go. Paul uses a pretty tough phrase here. He says, I've told you about some who are enemies of the cross. That's a tough phrase to stomach because the cross, like what is the cross if not the most wonderful, compassionate, gracious symbol in human history, right? It's like this ultimate picture of self-sacrifice on behalf of humanity. So it has the vibe of like, man, everybody's a friend of the cross, Uh, but Paul confronts us. I mean, he wants us to feel it. He's like, there's enemies of the cross, Say, okay, well, here's what Paul says about the cross, though, in Colossians 1. He says, the cross is what enables us to stand before God holy and blameless. In Romans 8, he poses the question, what can separate us from the love of God that was accomplished through the cross? Not angels, demons, life, death, height, depth. We're more than conquerors because of the cross. So we know Paul's stance on the cross, come one, come all. Like anyone that says yes to Jesus, like the cross is available for you, but yet he uses this, this kind of daunting phrase, Thankfully, like a surgeon, he breaks down exactly what he means by enemies of the cross, and let's do that. This isn't where the bulk of our sermon's gonna be, but let's break this down real quick. He says, their God is their belly. In other words, their desires steer them. Whatever they so choose is their religion. They have no vision for their world or their neighbor. Their impulses are controlled by the lust of their flesh. They do what serves them best. In a weird way, they're slaves to their freedom. Oddly enough, right? What does it mean to be free? They've chosen in their freedom proactively against God. It says they glory in their shame. So they don't only choose against God. They don't take the gospel and then deny it and then choose themselves over it. They glory in their shame. So they don't just do it. They brag about it. They're happy to do it. They boast in it. I remember watching this movie about the the 2008 housing market collapse, and if you know this story, there were a few people that actually were aware it might happen, but if you were alive in 2008, that was like impossible. Like, no one is betting against the housing market, but yet a few knew, and they started doing their due diligence before they just like put their life savings betting against the housing market, and as they're investigating, they're talking to these people who have been handing out loans to poor people, and the people that are handing out the loans are super rich because they get money off the top every time they give off a loan. Whether the person can pay the loan or not, not their responsibility. They just are trying to make money. And so they're, they're talking about it. Their boats, their trips, they're wearing nice suits, they got great teeth, and they're just talking about how profitable their business is. And the man doing the investigating, he's got a couple teammates with him, and they walk away from the conversation, and the man's concerned. He's like, I don't get it. They've basically just like told me of their criminal activity. Why are they confessing? And the coworker looks back at him and goes, they're not confessing, they're bragging. And it's this daunting moment where evil is so immersed in evil, it begins bragging about being evil, unaware it's being evil. Like, it's that kind of evil. That's what it is to glory in your shame. You glory in the things, you don't even have the eyes to see how shameful it is. And then Paul sums it up. Their minds are set on earthly things. All of this adds up to a godless life. If your minds are set on earthly things, that means your mind is set in such a way where earth is the end all be all. There is no God, right? And when there's no God and this is it, we just showed up here and started talking and building tables and microphones and having interchanges like this one. I mean, isn't this so weird? Do you guys ever wonder how the heck this all happened? (laughs) I mean, I know like Genesis, but still, like this is insane. 
But when your God is your belly and you glory in your shame, you go, no, this is it. This is the one life. Make the most of it. Give it your all. And when that's your mindset, you write your own Bible with your own morals. And when you do that, you tend to gravitate toward things like power or money or influence or greed or people's approval or whatever. But all in all, Paul says, these are enemies of the cross because the cross bids you come and die to live again. To know and love and walk with Jesus means to say goodbye to life as you know it and saying yes to life as Jesus prescribes it. Like, Jesus, have your way. And they're enemies of the cross because you can't serve two gods. You can't be your own God and Jesus be God too. They're enemies because they've rejected the gospel message and chosen their own. They've chosen themselves over God. And here's the hard truth. There are enemies of the cross then and there are enemies of the cross now. This is still true. There are still people within a square mile of this building whose God is their bellies, who glory in their shame, whose mind is set on earthly things. And Paul's saying, our citizenship is in heaven. He's coming down to a people that are so used to the Christian message, we forget the implications of it. He's going, I am going to be in heaven. My citizenship, I'm gonna be so in heaven I'm gonna be so there that my citizenship isn't even here. My citizenship is in my more permanent reality in the heavenly realm with the physical Jesus that I will hug. I will feel his nail-scarred hands like pat my back. I'm gonna feel that. I'm gonna see him. I'm gonna smell him. Who knows? Probably a smell we've never smelled before. It's glorious. I don't know. We don't know. I just saw like an Old Spice commercial. Um, Anyway. That can't be right. Um, But Paul's going like, I'm gonna be in heaven for real. I'm actually gonna hug Jesus, talk to Jesus, be with the saints. And because of that, when I talk about enemies of the cross, I don't talk about them with pride or with an ego or with an elitist mentality. And the bulk of our conversation this morning is capturing when Paul talks about those that don't know Jesus, what's the posture of his heart? And it's an invitation to you to posture your heart like Paul's, who's posturing his heart like Jesus. He says, let's back up a few words. So he articulates this truth, and it's clear, and it's blunt, and it's impossible to misinterpret. But what is this truth doing, that there are enemies of the cross? What's it doing to his heart? It's breaking his heart. He's not like... There's no pride in his voice when he names that there's enemies of the cross. And he's even calling back a memory for the Philippians. You remember, I told you about him with tears in my eyes. And I'm, I'm serious, like at that moment when they read this letter to the Philippian church, they remembered that sermon where Paul was speaking about enemies of the cross and broke down. Now, to appreciate that Paul would cry thinking about those that didn't know Jesus. We need to remember who Paul is, okay? So Paul, formerly Saul, meets Jesus, gets a name change. What if it was like that for all of us? My name would be (laughs) D'Artagnan. Was Josh, met Jesus, I'm D'Artagnan. It's a Three Musketeers reference from the 90s. Anyway, let's think about Paul, a Pharisee, a zealous Pharisee, meaning Before Jesus, he still loved the Old Testament and believed a Messiah was coming. He just didn't think it was Jesus. So he hated Jesus. 
and he hated anyone that loved Jesus. And so what he would do is he would go around to homes searching for anyone that uttered the name of Jesus, believed the name of Jesus, and he would arrest them. And scripture says, breathe murderous threats and then throw them into prison. So to make this literal, I want you to picture you in a house. Maybe you got kids. Maybe this is future and there's children on the floor. And a cop, an officer, knocks on your door and without saying anything, just wrestles you to the ground, handcuffs you, your kids are screaming, crying, your spouse is weeping, no one knows what's happening, throws you in a cop car, you've got a 20 minute ride to the station. The entire ride, the cop never looks at you, acknowledges you, you just see anger, does not care, has not empathized or thought about your situation that you were just like pulled out of, doesn't care. That was like, that's a literal example of Paul. Paul was not this empathetic, compassionate person. His zeal for Old Testament law led him to drag people out of their homes and throw them into prison. And at the end of Paul's day, he was proud of himself. Did a good job. It never set home that he had just ruined some lives, okay? Until he meets Jesus. I'm not fantasizing Paul. This is is exactly how it went. He meets Jesus, and it's Jesus who teaches Paul to cry. Because Paul's still the same in a lot of ways. If you don't believe what Paul's believing, he's still coming to your house. He's still looking for you. He's still knocking on your door. It's just that knock's gonna have a different cadence to it, you know? Maybe old school Paul would have been like banging on the door like I'm coming in no matter what and I'm, <laughs> I'm wrecking some lives. But now he's met Jesus. He has actually come face to face with the one true God. And he has beheld for himself first the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Jesus calls out and calls him by name, Saul. Hey, Saul, not only am I real, but I am talking to you and you alone. Don't mistake this. I ain't talking to the crowd. I'm talking to you. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And he sends him to a house of a faithful follower of Jesus. And he speaks to that faithful follower on Paul's behalf. And he promises Paul that he's going to use him to reach the nations. Paul had encountered the grace and mercy of Jesus. Imagine being Paul, murdering, arresting Christians, only to meet Jesus to find out you just murdered and arrested people that believed the real thing. And instead of getting retribution, he gets grace. That'll break your heart. When you recognize you're a sinner saved by grace, that'll break you. So Paul's no longer living out of this zeal, this like righteous indignation. He's like, dude, I met the real God. Turns out Jesus, legit, real deal. He was actually him, capital H. And if I have to die to boost the odds that you'll call him Lord, I'll do so. Everything after Paul meets Jesus, he's like, man, I'll do whatever it takes so that the name of Jesus graces your lips. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 that I think really captures like Paul's, just how desperate he is that people call Jesus Lord. He says, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul, who are you a servant to? Literally anyone. That's who I serve. Anyone I'm talking to, I am ready to serve them. 
To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law, Jews, Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. And I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. This is the heart posture of the church. To do whatever we need, to become whoever we need to become, that someone might know the goodness of God. To serve whoever is willing to be served so they can come to know Jesus. In Matthew chapter nine, a lot of scriptures that won't slow down, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is Jesus' frothy moment. Looks out, sees a crowd. Where you and I would see a crowd and hear so much murmuring we couldn't pick out an individual sentence, Jesus is looking out and he's seeing individual stories. He's remembering knitting every single human in their mother's womb. And he sees him as sheep without a shepherd. And the result, his heart just begins oozing compassion. They need a shepherd. And he looks at his disciples in the midst of the crowd. What happens in the very next verse, chapter 10, verse 1, he begins naming the 12. I love this picture of Christ. He looks out, sees lostness, confusion, people that need to know God's real. And he goes, man, the problem isn't if people are willing to receive me. The problem is no one's telling them about me. (laughs) Like, these people are hungry to know the goodness of God. Just no one's telling them. And he begins naming disciples like, man, I got to raise up laborers. The harvest is there. I just need hands. But it says they're being harassed. By who? At least in part, the group of people being referenced is the Pharisees. The religious elite. Imagine this. Religious leaders, all the education, and really all the dedication, right? Like they know the word. Honestly, we should honor them a little bit more than we do because, you know, they're always kind of messing it up. The Pharisees are the only people Jesus has beef with. It's hard to like them. But man, they know the word front and back. They've given their life to knowing scripture. And yet, they have somehow created this cold distance between knowing the word inside and out and giving the word to those who need it most. There's this mega gap. And instead, they've made people feel oppressed and like they could never be as holy, right? Imagine being Jesus, handwriting every word of scripture, only to see the ones who know it the most abuse it the most. All these hungry souls, eager to be fed, no one feeding them. It breaks his heart, right? Like, to be a follower of Jesus, to know the goodness of Jesus, and to know that there are people that do not know Jesus should create in us this yearning, God, your presence has to get over there. We gotta figure out how that person utters the name of Jesus sincerely. We gotta get there. It's that Exodus 33 moment where God and Moses are having a negotiation, God says, look, 
this is a mess. Moses, you go with him, and I will fulfill my promises, but I will not go. And Moses goes, God, hey, hey, God, they don't need me. God, they don't need your promises. God, they need you. We're not going anywhere until you promise you're going with us. And if they're not asking for it for themselves, I'm asking for it on their behalf. Please, God, join us. It's Daniel chapter 9 where he says, Oh, Lord, hear, forgive, pay attention, act, don't delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. And I'm so sorry they're not crying out to you. I'm sorry they're arrogant. I'm sorry they're idolatrous. But if they're not going to pray, I'll pray. Please, God, send your presence. We need you. Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet. What an amazing nickname. In chapter 20, says this. If I tell myself, I'm paraphrasing. If I tell myself, I will not mention God or speak any more in his name, there is, now I'm exact quoting, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary holding it in, and I cannot hold it in. Imagine if you got tired from holding in what the Holy Spirit was stirring within you. Imagine if you walked with God so closely and your heart so mimicked his that when he put a word in you, when he put something stirring in you, you were like, until I get this out, I'm uncomfortable. Knowing the love of God and truly knowing it and truly knowing that some people don't know it is like having a fire in your bones that cannot get put out until you live and speak the goodness of Jesus to those people. That's what this is to be a follower of Jesus. It's that Luke 23 moment, Jesus suffocating on the cross. Every breath might be the last. And with all the strength, musters enough oxygen to utter the words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If the soldiers that nailed me to this wood are not praying for forgiveness, I will do it for them. They don't know God. They're ignorant, Father. Forgive them. And what this is, this is an invitation to you, if you're a believer in Jesus, into the wholehearted gospel wholehearted, to have eyes to see, ears to hear that people don't know God. And that is no small thing. And all of us, I know this is heavy, stick with me. All of us are tempted by culture and by our instinct to ignore the pain of the world. Stay lost in your algorithm. Stay lost in your narrative. Make a great life for you. It's just, ah, it's too bad for everybody else. Get the job. Get the money. Raise the family. Attend church if that's your thing. Go on vacation. Deal with personal pain only when you're forced to, right? But that's not living wholeheartedly. And we don't, if we're not careful, we'll just adopt this weird mindset that every day needs to have a silver lining that's like some version of something good that happened to me. Like every day should have something that makes me feel pretty good. 
And we conflate or we confuse like happiness with like dopamine hits. And a wholehearted person is one that doesn't neglect any aspect of the heart of God. So when the heart of God calls on us to rejoice, to laugh, to celebrate, we say, yeah, there's plenty to laugh about, to celebrate, to rejoice in. But when the heart of God calls us to mourn, to grieve, to weep, we also say like, come, Lord, come. We don't neglect one part of the Father's heart. And I wanna tell you this and name it plainly, this is so hard. What I'm saying right now I mean, I'm trying to think of like a story to just alleviate some of the bummer that you're feeling right now. It's just a bummer. We're not being equipped to think this way, especially on behalf of others. But we're not embracing the wholehearted gospel of Jesus if we're now not allowing our hearts to break for others. And if you know Christ, if you're in here and you call Jesus Lord for real, for real, here's what you know about Jesus. He's so good, like for real. Not even being dramatic. He's so good. Man, he brings healing. He brings joy. He brings a peace that actually and legitimately transcends human logic. Some of you are coming in here and you're wearing scars on your heart that used to be wounds that Jesus healed. And those scars testified how real and how good and how close he's been to your life. He's changed your families. He's changed your future. And if you know that Jesus and you know someone that doesn't know that Jesus, the math is so simple. It's heartbreak. Christian, you cannot dodge this. You're not allowed. Now, the good news is if you'll take courage and embrace this heart, the heartbroken Jesus, you're just a step closer to understanding the heart of God more fully. That heartbreak does not create distance between you and God. It only creates intimacy. To hurt like God hurts. It was the broken heart of Jesus that compelled him to die. It was the broken heart of Jesus that compelled him to heal, to teach. We all know this, he was a homeless nomad the three years of ministry. Why do you think he did that? You know how insane that is? Anybody else want to be homeless for three years just so you can walk around different parts of Nashville preaching the gospel? You ever ask yourself, what has to be in the heart of someone doing that if he's not a lunatic? It's a heart that's been broken for people, so broken that the standards and successes of culture have no, like, they don't have any implications for your life anymore. Why? I don't, they don't know Jesus. They don't know God, right? That'll drive you. You are not called in this church or any church to be an expert. You're not called to be perfect. Lord knows. Look at us. You know, we're not. You're not called to memorize half a scripture. It would help. But you're not called to. Like, you don't have to memorize the perfect script that has enough truth and enough relatability that you save someone through your evangelistic strategies in Nashville. Like, that's not on you. The pressure is not on you to be a performer. The invitation, and perhaps maybe even the instruction, is you do join Jesus' heart and being heartbroken for the world around you. And I, I think, 
this would not surprise me. I got this strong gut feeling that some of us are heartbreak away from leading our people to Jesus. We get stuck in the shallow waters of how do I say it? When do I say it? How does it work? What if it's weird? And we totally bypass the first step. Dude, go to God and break for them. Some of us, our hearts are already breaking for our people. We just haven't slowed down and let the reality of that wash over us. Because who wants to on a random Tuesday just go, you know what, God, can we be sad together? That's what I'm looking for. My calendar's full. I'm addicted to social media. I can't get my diet quite right. My friend group's weird, and that girl won't date me. But I'd love to just sit and be sad with you over the lost people of this world. It's funny, it's true. There's this invisible wall that exists in our prayer life, and it's in the first four minutes of prayer, I swear. And if we can scale that wall, we're fine. But that first few minutes, it never sounds good to just keep being still. But be still. Know that I'm God. Here's the good news. The pressure's not on your heart to produce feelings and emotions. The miracle of God is, Jesus says, I'm gonna send my helper, my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's heart is broken for people. So if you sit with God long enough, I promise you, your heart will break for people as a consequence. Not out of you mustering with all your might. And so the one takeaway for how do we step into this is to depend wholeheartedly on God. If you want to feel powerless immediately, and you probably don't, but if you want to, start praying for the salvation of someone else. You will immediately understand what has always been true. You're powerless. Maybe we can mentally stimulate somebody with our words. Maybe we can emotionally stir them, but we cannot make a soul cry out to Jesus. You cannot do that. You need the Father. Jesus demonstrates this. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane when he's about to be arrested. And he looks at his disciples and he says, I'm distressed to the point of death. It's the most stressed out point in, in all of Scripture. And he runs to the Father and he hits his knees. And you know what? You don't picture this Jesus probably very often. But he says, Abba, remove this cup. I don't want it. This is a heavy burden, the sins of the world. And I don't prefer it. It's not my first choice. Jesus said that. The Jesus that saved you, he said that first. Then what does he say? Not my will, your will be done. That's intercessory prayer right there. You know what, God? Real talk. I don't feel like praying for lost people right now. I got a nine to five. I'm gonna get a good workout in, watch my favorite show, go to sleep. That's my, work, that's my plan for the day. Sounds good, don't it? <laughs> like, can you remove the cup of my heartbreaking for lost people? Can we just give that to people who are naturally inclined to think that way? No, not my will. Your will to be done. When I come before you, Lord, forgive me when I come before you with my agenda to pray for. 
I was about to come here and pray for that job opening to work out. I was going to totally skip past my neighbor coming to profess you as Lord and Savior. My bad, not my will, yours be done. God, what do you want to talk about? God, what's your heart for these people? What are you doing in their story? Father, work. Give me eyes to see, ears to hear. Jesus makes this really beautiful promise. Abide in me, you'll bear fruit. It's this really hopeful reality. It's like, you know, if there was a plant that was going to produce fruit, you'd need the seed to be in good, healthy soil, and you'd need healthy, uh, healthy amounts of rain and sunshine for that plant to produce fruit, right? Fruit, in that instance, is a consequence of a good seed, good soil, good stuff. Jesus says, you want a heart like mine? Come be with me. Don't leave. Don't leave. Abide. It means remain. Stay with me. In the inner closet, stay with me. When you leave the inner closet, stay with me. If you'll abide in me, you'll bear fruit. So to stay close to God, to come before God going, God, I want to understand how your heart breaks for people. I want to understand how your burden is light, yet your heart is broken. How do they fit? How do I walk with a light burden and a broken heart at the same time, Jesus? How did you manage to have joy while knowing some people would not profess your name? How did you do that, dude? How are you carrying all the emotions on the spectrum? I don't know how to do that. I need you to help me. And the more you stick closer to Jesus, as a consequence, you will bear this fruit. He will fortify in you a broken heart. And so the invitation on this church is to take a baby step in what's called intercessory prayer. To be willing to pray for someone else. That's all intercessory prayer means. It sounds really fancy and like, I don't know how to do intercessory prayer. It literally means pray to God on behalf of someone else. That word intercessor means to come between. And I don't know if you know this, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you now. Right now, it's happening. This is Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Anybody else? Can we just say amen? We don't know what to pray for. You ever get on your knees and be like, I don't know. I feel like if I pray for that, it's probably shallow, so what do you, I don't, just let your will be done, Lord. You know, like, amen, see ya. Uh, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's that heartbroken prayer. That's that, I don't even, and the Holy Spirit's like, I got it, you're good. Just, you know, like, it's not demeaning though. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit, the helper, the Spirit of truth, the comforter, prays for you. In the same way that Jesus took the cross in between you and God to make a way, the Holy Spirit right now is between you and God making a way. And we join Jesus on the cross and the Holy Spirit in between us and Father when we stand in the gap on behalf of our people. God, I am praying on behalf of a friend who does not pray. And I'm asking for your presence on a life, on a light that is not asking for your presence. And I'm asking you to intervene in someone's life for a light that is not asking you to intervene. God, will you move in mighty ways? In whatever part of the story you want me to play in this, I'm in. I'm not assuming I'm the Savior. I'm not assuming I got to hang up and call him right now and preach my heart out. But if you want me to, God, I'm in. Lead me by your spirit. Our hearts are far more intelligent 
than we give them credit for. Right now, you are aware of people. You're aware of their pain. You're aware of their wounding. Sit with God long enough. He will show you what to do with that awareness. He will show you how to walk with lost people as you pray for them. He will steer your heart. I'm opening a whole Pandora's box and I'm just gonna send us to communion and it's, it's gonna feel incomplete because it is, so that would be accurate. I think we're in like the Bezos era. The two-day max, you know? We're so instantaneous. If it says, I can, you know, this, this, if I'm on Amazon, it's like, this could be delivered to you in four days. I'm like, four days? <laughs> I don't get time for that. <laughs> I'll pay extra. Like, what the, you know? That's where my mind goes. Praying for people that don't know Jesus, loving people that don't know Jesus, I guarantee you, we'll see some instant results. But I also guarantee you, like you ever heard someone faithful who said, I prayed for them for 11 years, and I kid you not, they gave their life to Christ. Man, we need some of those prayers. It's like, God, I know you're not bound by time, I am. So Lord, help me to enter into the infinite prayer request of let them come to you, Jesus. And I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Find me praying for them. There's a guy at the 9 a.m. He was an atheist in October. I mean, he sat there and told me it. He was like, I could never, he told me to my face at Turnip Truck. If you know me, you know I like to stop there for snacks and apparently pastoral meetings. And we were talking and he told me with tears in his eyes, dude, I just can't believe in God. I just, I thought about it. That dude is walking so close with Jesus now. Like, it's crazy. You should hear the way he talks about the Bible. It puts me to shame sometimes. I'm like, no, same, bro, ditto, ditto, ditto. <laughs> because I can't add to anything he's saying, you know? He's like really getting stirred. <laughs> Guys, lost people can actually come to know and believe in Jesus, even in 2023, even after they've deconstructed everything that there is to be deconstructed. I'd argue this culture is starving for a heartbroken people who, like Paul, don't come with eloquence of our words, don't come ready to debate philosophy until we're blue in the face, until I've intellectually stirred you, convinced you, no, I'm serious, I'm right. I think they're hungry for people that go, man, I just love you. And I have went to bat for you in the presence of God for hours on hours on hours. We're intuitive people. Your people will feel that heart in you. I believe God's made them to be able to pick out the people that have been praying for them in the inner closet, prayers that maybe they'll never know of. But I promise you, you spend enough time in the inner closet on behalf of your friend that doesn't know Jesus, they will feel that holiness. They will feel that love, that compassion. I believe that. I don't know where to stop, and I, I'm, I'm gonna stop now. Um, this is that rubber meets the road moment for the Christian. Hey, Jesus ain't just your savior. He's the savior. God ain't just your God. He's the God. And every human breathing on this planet was made by God. Has a soul designed to utter the name of Jesus. No ifs, ands, or buts. No idols competing. Jesus alone. My fear is that our lack of seeing salvation has made us start believing salvation's not even real. And we're just this paradox. We don't even believe in salvation, but we call ourselves Christian. Salvation is real, dude. I've seen it recently. It is not outdated. 
the harvest is plentiful. Jesus was telling the truth. Will we be laborers? Will we be laborers that start in the inner closet with God himself? God, I want your whole heart. I don't just want the happiness of God or the parts of God that help me live a sound, disciplined life. I want the heart of God that cries, that bleeds out, that people would know you. Give me that heart. And so for communion, I wanna keep us real simple because I understand the weight of this and also the complexity of intercessory prayer, but we're gonna make it real simple because that's how my brain operates. Today, if you need a visible reminder, write down one name of someone. This is like some VBS stuff right here. Write down a name of someone you know that doesn't know Jesus. And before you start feeling the pressure to evangelize them perfectly, to Romans wrote them, to make them figure out how to get saved, like what if you just spent time going, God, make my heart more like yours toward this person. Help me to treat, talk about, pray for this person just like you do. And be willing to stay in that prayer closet and enter into the mystery of praying for someone else. If you want more resources or some books or some conversations around intercessory prayer, please come find me. But also, be comfortable holding hands with mystery. Let God teach you some stuff. He's real. He will join the heart that is praying for another. I promise. You just gotta stay in that prayer closet for a long time and then keep showing back up. So for communion, there's communion in here underneath the little inside chairs. We can go ahead and pass that out. Take communion at your leisure, but we're gonna take communion by ourselves. And before you take communion, I wanna encourage you to pray for a name for one person and commit to praying for them every single day until they come to know Jesus. Some of y'all just walked in here like, I ain't even been here before. It's a pretty big commitment. Well, you can say no, it's okay. But that's what I'd say. Pray for one person every single day let the Holy Spirit lead that prayer. You go, God, I'll be right back here every day until they say your name, until they know you, Jesus. We're gonna take four or five minutes to pray and then I'm gonna invite us to pray together.